Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. In our latest Senate update, Democrat Brian McKean and Republican Elizabeth Mayer, along with moderator Drew Littman, discuss how the 116th Congress will set itself apart. Will substantive legislation make its way through both chambers in 2019, or has the shutdown stifled meaningful progress? Looking ahead to 2020, which senators are vulnerable for re-election and which ones can we expect to see on the presidential campaign trail? Brian and Elizabeth navigate the current tumult on Capitol Hill to answer these questions and more. Hello and welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Drew Littman, Policy Director, joined by my colleagues Elizabeth Mayer and Brian McKean for a Senate update. Elizabeth, let's start with you. Senate has reorganized for the 116th Congress. Committee assignments have been made. Any surprises? Anything notable? Uh, No. uh, I can speak to the Republican list. Brian can speak to the Democratic list. You know, the, the ratios in the Senate didn't change as dramatically as did the ratios in the House for uh, the Democratic takeover. Pardon me, by ratios, you mean the proportion of Republicans relative to Democrats on each committee? Correct. And even on a broader level, ratios as, as far as how many Democrats won their races in the House versus how many did in the Senate. So it, it, it wasn't terribly surprising to me. Everybody knew that Senator Grassley might end up taking over the Senate Finance Committee. Everybody knew Senator Lindsey Graham was in line to take the Senate Judiciary Committee, although some folks did question whether he might be angling for a very, very serious administration position, even Secretary of Defense. And everyone knew that Senator Thune was going to get uh, elected by his peers to be the Senate Republican whip, and therefore Senator Wicker uh, was going to become the chairman of the Commerce Committee. So, no, I, I don't think it's surprising. I do think, and then I'll let Brian chime in on the Democratic end of things, but I, I do think there are some unknowns as far as, as what their um, policy stamps are going to look like. For example, with Senator Risch, um, who just became the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I remember reading a, a, a very brief op-ed uh, recently where he was quoted as saying, you know, he, he is in a neocon. He is not 100% transactional. He's a Rishian foreign relations person. And so what that ends up meaning um, for his tenure as chairman remains to be seen and will be very interesting. If I can, Brian, before before we go to you to talk about Democrats, Elizabeth, just follow up with a question. On Senate Judiciary Committee, you have a first, really two firsts in terms of the Republican roster. You want to say a few words about that? Uh, Kavanaugh hearings, everyone was watching judiciary, right? They were. Um, as a uh, Republican woman, I think it's great. I don't believe it's something that is uh, going to change the tenor of the committee too much. Um, the it that- would be the appointment of Joni Ernst and Marsha Blackburn, first two female Republican senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, and there were rumors that they were... Uh, the Committee on Committees for Republicans in the Senate was having a hard time finding women who wanted to serve on the Senate Judiciary Committee because it's just one of uh, the most partisan committees left in the Senate. But at the end of the day, it, it all worked out pretty smoothly. And I think there'll be just, you know, a great additions to uh, the Republican roster already on the committee. Mm-hmm. 
Brian, you want to talk about Democrats? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting to see um, on the Democratic side, in in particular, um, the debate around Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia assuming the uh, ranking membership of the Senate Energy Committee. These decisions are often made or almost exclusively made by the members of the Democratic caucus. And, and this was one where outside forces um, tried to insert themselves into the process a little bit. Why, why is Manchin's ascension controversial? So environmental groups were concerned, are concerned uh, about his position on energy issues relative to uh, climate change, clean energy, uh, those sorts of, of issues, um, given that he comes from a coal state in mm-hmm. West Virginia. Seniority on a committee is pretty sacrosanct um, on the Democratic side in the Senate. We don't have um, term limits like the Republicans do. And in, I, I can't recall an instance where someone was passed up um, who was next in line in, in seniority. And we had on the Energy Committee a situation where folks ahead of Senator Manchin in seniority on that committee had uh, gavels on other committees and mm-hmm. chose not to give them up, which mm-hmm. which um, left him um, in position to take that gavel. So it was interesting to see some outside groups try to exert some influence on the process, calling for others to step up and challenge Manchin. Of course, that didn't happen. It'll be interesting to see if he um, at all modifies his positions or takes a different approach on these sorts of issues. You know, the committee itself doesn't necessarily have primary jurisdiction over climate change issues. Uh, It has a large role, but other committees in the Senate um, have arguably more uh, authority on on, on those sorts of issues. But it'll be interesting to see if, if... the outside uh, engagement um, on his ascension um, has any impact at all on mm-hmm. on, on things. It's also interesting. Uh, you know, I would note that Gary Peters from from Michigan, who has just begun his fifth term, uh, sorry, fifth year, excuse me, in the Senate, has a ranking membership on the Homeland Security Committee. Wow. Um, so there, there are colleagues, um, you know, Susan Collins for for one, who has been around for a long, long, long time on the Republican side, but hasn't hasn't ascended to um, to a leadership of a committee. I find it very interesting that he, uh, just as sort of luck would have it and, and timing um, in his fifth year in the Senate, is now um, in control of a gavel. That is interesting. I have a follow-up question for you as well, Brian. I saw that Senator Michael Bennett was named to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Have any thoughts on why Senator Bennett would seek? Usually, um, for people who don't follow the process quite as closely as we do, as you're building seniority, the longer you're in the Senate, you become loath to give up your committee assignments because, as you said, seniority is everything. So, for someone like Bennett, who's been here for a couple of terms, to give up, I think he gave up a seat on the Help Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions for Intel. Want to speculate on why he would do that? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, you're right. It, it is it is pretty rare for folks to give up existing seats. I think it happened a couple times on the Democratic side um, elsewhere this Congress, but that was for finance committee seats where you had Senator Hassan, Senator Cortez Masto give up seats on, on other committees to get on finance, which is the most coveted right. committee. For Intel, you know, I, I would assume that, that Bennett's views uh, were that you know national security and intelligence issues are essential um, in this Congress. Perhaps he's considering um, you know other office and wants to have more exposure, a stronger background, and in, in yep. those sorts of things that he's not getting on the Help Committee. And yeah. I think you know the the um, the Help Committee 
things kind of seem to be at a standstill on both health and education yeah. issues right now. And perhaps he just thought that it would be more. That may be significant as well. And and I would just add for my two cents, and I don't know that this is the case, um, but I will say, you know, for my old boss, being on the Senate Intelligence Committee was one of the great interests of Senator Kyle when he was in the Senate. And, you know, if he has a Senator Bennett, a fairly safe seat and is just really interested in this these issues, he might just really want to be working on these national security issues. Right. Well, and, and extra interesting in Senator Bennett's case, because he comes from an education background. Right. That's right. Um, that's how he, uh, that's where he started his career and spent, I believe, um, a large majority of his career prior to the Senate in the public education space. Um, so so for, for him to get off that committee is significant. I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and say he's running for president. And that's why he sought the appointment to the Intelligence Committee. If you look at some of the other Democratic candidates for president, look at committee assignments that they swapped for after they received their initial committee assignments. We'll go back to Hillary Clinton, gave up her budget committee seat to get on armed services as she was contemplating a presidential run. Uh, Elizabeth Warren recently got appointed to armed services. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, they would argue they traded up to get on Senate Judiciary Committee, but they looked for national security appointments as well. And, and what Senator Bennett is doing seems to be very much in line with what senators do when they're contemplating running for president. Let's talk about vulnerable senators specifically in the context of shutdown politics. I look at senators, Cory Gardner from Colorado, Tom Tillis from North Carolina, Susan Collins from Maine, all up for re-election, probably the three most vulnerable Republican senators in this cycle, relatively moderate uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. They've all urged the president to reopen the government. What does it tell us, Elizabeth? that the most vulnerable senators want the government open and wall negotiations if they take place at all on a separate track? Well, in brief, I think it it, it indicates such a split um, for Republicans right now, depending on what state they're from, about where they are allowed, so to speak, to, to come down on an issue. And I, I think that it also reflects upon a state and perhaps the number of federal employees they might have in a mm. state as well. But if you just take Senator Gardner as an example, Colorado um, has become a, a very solidly purple-leaning sort of blue state. And so he really has to respond to what his constituents are saying in his efforts uh, in Washington. And I, I think that's going to be the case amongst some Republican senators. There are 22 Republican senators up in 2020, mm -hmm. and I won't venture to break down where they're all going to start, you know, coming down on issues. But there really is this interesting and very distinct split among them all about where uh, their constituents have landed when it comes to Trump. Sure. Uh, Brian, let's switch to talk about Democrats. Are Democrats also, I mean, they may not be bearing the brunt of negative polling, but there's still a lot of people who are unhappy with Democrats. And the most vulnerable senator in this re-election cycle, everyone agrees, is Doug Jones, who was elected in a special in Alabama and now has to run again in 2020. Is he in jeopardy over the government shutdown? Does he need to move to Trump's position faster? At all. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, you noted earlier that the polling is, has been largely indicative of Republicans taking the most heat on this issue, but that will change. And I think there are plenty of people out there that say pox on both houses. Um, they may end up in a 
response to a poll say, well, I think Republicans are more at fault. But in the back of their mind, they mm-hmm. probably acknowledge that there's plenty of blame to be assigned. They just want to kick out all the incumbents. Yeah, right, right. right. And, and, you know, Senator Jones is is certainly, you know, on uh, the Senator Gardner line of, of vulnerability um, here in 2020. And I think he, he's similarly calling for, you know, cooler heads to prevail here. Um, I do think the electorate has a short memory on this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I was personally of the mind that there would be a larger price to pay from uh, the ACA Planned Parenthood shutdown um, a number of years ago. But Republicans, of course, swept the White House, the presidency and the House in 2016. This is happening pretty far away from an election. I ultimately think that in a state like Alabama or a state like Colorado, Voters want their members to be part of the solution and not on the outside trying to pick apart potential compromises. And, and I think a lot of folks are positioning them, themselves as, as such. Let's shift a little bit to talk about uh, oversight in the 116th Congress. We know on the House side, where Democrats are now in the majority, they plan to use their control of committees to investigate the president and his administration, certainly the private sector as well. Will Senate Republicans provide a counterweight? And I'm thinking about uh, remarks that the new chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee made the other day. What would that counterweight look like? Brian, do you want to take that first if you have a sense, and then we'll go to Elizabeth? Yeah, it's it, it's going to be an interesting thing to see. I mean, you know, Democratic uh, chairman on the House side are you know, starting as the committees of are finally being organized. Once we're through this shutdown, hopefully soon, the the committees will start meeting pretty regularly and robustly. Um, they're going to be readying subpoenas, um, calling cabinet secretaries, assistant secretaries up uh, on any issue under the sun. I think as far as a counterweight, um, I don't know that it's quite as easy to, you know, in a committee hearing process, give someone an opportunity to rebut what may have happened on the Senate, on the House side on a Tuesday and a hearing on the Senate side on a Thursday. I think they will, you know, Senate Republicans are not necessarily going to chase the same sort of investigations that um, that House Democrats are going to do. I think the counterweight is that they will refrain from getting involved in a lot of these things. And, and that's impactful because it's, it's, one, you know, it, it basically one half the Congress is not is not conducting its responsibilities or its constitutional role because mm-hmm. they might not feel that it's an important thing to do or they might um, want to allow the House committees to, to do their work. So I think inaction will be the counterweight um, on the Republican side. Elizabeth, you have a different view? I really don't. I agree with Brian. I mean, I, I would just say that, they're look, we all know the Democrats are in charge in the House and they're going to have – so many investigations and oversight hearings. Some of them are going to be very silly, and some of them are going to be meaningful. And I just don't really believe on the Senate side that they're going to pick apart or be able to and do a counterweight hearing to undo the silliness of, say, you know, I can't even think of an example, but a, a silly House oversight hearing. And I would also say the House Republicans, though, are, for example, asking why publicly Michael Cohen is coming to testify. Well, 
you don't have to be immersed 24 hours a day to sort of understand why. But I, I do believe that some of the counterweight, believe it or not, will come more from the House throwing sort of flames back than from the Senate. Senator Graham was talking about holding hearings on Hillary Clinton. Does that is that someone's idea of a counterweight? On uh, on on elections, email servers, something. Um, Benghazi. I I um I don't know. I think, and I may be in a minority here in this room, but I I would be. I believe Senator Graham could put together some pretty decent hearings on those topics especially as they relate to the DSCC and a lot of other topics. But I don't believe it's going to take up a vast amount of the Senate Judiciary Committee's time. Um, Let's talk about legislation, something that we always get to in our Senate updates and our House updates. Brian, any hope for substantive legislation this year? Well, it's a good question. Um, You know, we talked earlier about some of the coming uh, uh, cliffs, fiscal cliff, the debt ceiling cliff. Those are, you know, real um, areas of inflection where uh, responsible parties have to step up and and pass something. The roadmap on how to do it is there because we've had to do it a number of times over the last, you know, eight to 10 years. Um, So hopefully that sort of legislative process can can move forward in a a non-controversial way. And it, it, it kind of seems silly to say that the year is over with, but, you know, with investigations on the House side, uh, split party control, House and Senate, um, the presidential campaign already sort of kicking off. I think they're the, the, the window of time in which real policymaking can, can, can get done is, is quite is smaller than it was two weeks ago mm-hmm. um, in, in my in my view. So. It's something like a transportation infrastructure uh, type package. Um, it's you know potentially some some tax uh, tax law modifications, stuff that is going to have bipartisan support uh, that I think is most likely to move. And you know, uh, all, the folks who listen, listen to this podcast know that the Congress does a lot of what I like to call blocking and tackling. Um, on a year-to-year basis, um, just because there's not major legislative packages moving doesn't mean that stuff isn't happening because agencies have to be reauthorized and laws need to be extended and reauthorized. And that sort of stuff happens um, without a whole lot of ink spilled over over um, those initiatives. So I think that stuff moves forward, but the window for a large sort of grand bargain that both parties can sink their teeth into, I think, is is um, is closing. Elizabeth? Uh, I agree completely, and I believe it's not just a little bit. The door closed more than a couple of weeks ago. I think the door is starting to slam shut. (laughs) Um, I I will say, Brian mentioned infrastructure. I think at the end of the day, if they really start to get serious about it, and I know there are working groups, private sector and on the Hill about this, but I think it digresses not to some grand, huge infrastructure package. I think it will be limited to surface transportation, and maybe they'll they'll flirt with some broadband. The surface transportation bill expires the end of 2020, and I think in one pass got extended like 20 times before they passed the real uh, highway bill. And so um, that's also a difficult exercise. And as Brian said, next year is a, a presidential election year. 
and I think that the, the, the doors are closing. I do think, as you will recall, last year, Senator McConnell set up as a source of pride and an accomplishment. And this was new to me, and I've been around a long time. The fact that we were passing the appropriations bills, mm-hmm. he put it in every press release almost. Passing them in a timely manner, meaning in before a timely the end of the manner. fiscal year. And um, I think it will... Uh, come to that again, that that will be the legislative accomplishment. Okay. Um, You've given us an opening, intentionally or not, to talk about the Democratic race for president in 2020, which we'll talk about only briefly, but it is relevant to our Senate update. We've got, by my count, nine Democratic senators possibly or definitely running for president. That's a huge proportion. Brian, how will that, let's start from the Democratic side, how will that affect the functioning of the Senate, if at all? Uh, it, it will affect um, the functioning of the Senate from a you know procedural, granular level in terms of who's around and when people are here for votes and who's missing votes and who's at committee hearings and, and things of that nature, all the way to the political posturing that the Democratic caucus will or will not take to uh, back up and support the, what the presidential candidates are doing, and not not just the Senate, but the House as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be really interesting to see if frontrunners emerge or multiple frontrunners emerge, how does their policy prescriptions, their proposals impact what the House may do and take an issue like infrastructure or climate change. Um, if someone is out there calling for X, Y, or Z, there may be a desire um, from Speaker Pelosi's perspective to give her caucus an ability to vote on. I would suggest Medicare for all. Oh, Medicare for all, exactly. On those on those proposals and um, show voters where the members of Congress sit uh, on these issues. Mm-hmm. And I think we we have a, a somewhat of a test case from 2016 and an even maybe greater test case from um, 2008. 2008, we had Senator Obama, we had Senator Clinton, we had Senator Biden, we had Senator Dodd all running for president. Democrats were in the majority in 2007, 2008. So for Majority Leader Reid, it was it was a you know counting votes issue. Um, if folks got stuck in Iowa or New Hampshire because there was a snowstorm and couldn't get back for you know cloture vote, and that meant that the the bill was going to fail, it was a major issue for him. So it, I I do recall votes being held open for mm-hmm. a while mm-hmm. so that folks could come back. There was also a lot of focus on particular amendments, particular bills, where the presidential candidates tried to differentiate themselves from their opponents through the act of voting and how and why they were voting on something. That may be less of the less of a case now. Because Republicans control the Senate. Because Republicans control the Senate, exactly. There's also a lot less legislating, open legislating that happens in 2019 than did in 2007 and 2008. Um, the Senate has spent most of the last two years just doing nominations. Um, if that's the case, then it, it, it's it's not as relevant this time around. But it, 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 if it's nine, if it's ten, I, I, you mentioned nine, but there's a handful more that might be running. It becomes a real um, issue. And when uh, colleagues of all these senators start endorsing 
certain colleagues over others, mm. uh, it creates tensions. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that we saw that play out a lot in, in uh, oh, 2015, yeah. 2016 on the Republican side. Oh, absolutely. Also, was- also Merkley was the only senator to support Sanders, I think, which uh, differentiated him from his colleagues. And, and God knows if Hillary had won, might have made life a good deal more difficult for him. Elizabeth, I'd like to ask you a variation on that question. It seems that as Democrats will, won't be able to set up favorable policy votes that they can campaign on. On the other hand, I would expect fairly substantial turnover of President Trump's cabinet over the next couple of years. Does that create opportunities for Democrats? Does it create headaches for Republican committee chairs? I mean, they don't want these hearings turned into presidential campaign events, I would think. Right. Uh, Well, if President Trump is still wildly popular uh, amongst even you know his always following base and good people irrespective of their positions and whether those positions align exactly with president trump or not get into these nominated positions and go up to the hill then things will be just fine in the senate but if it looks like the wheels are really falling off the train um, on the Trump train. And it appears that, for example, calls for impeachment are getting taken more seriously or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Or in some grand surprise, the president says he's not running again or something like that. Then it it digresses and it becomes, um, you know, very, very difficult Um, To specifically answer your question, I think what you're asking is whether this will be a great opportunity for Democratic presidential candidates to take pot shots at new nominations of the presidents on the dais. Um, I would put it slightly differently. Of course, I wouldn't use the word pot shots, but but you can. Um, but, But I would say it's not so much the nominees. It's the opportunity to question policy, which otherwise the Republican committee chairs may not give them. So so a Republican committee chair may not want to hold a hearing on North Korea not denuclearizing. On the other hand, if you have a new secretary of state nominee or assistant secretary for arms control, then... Democrats get to ask whatever questions they want. Sure. So that that's where I'm going. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. And I think there will be that opportunity if people start resigning and new noms have to come. I would say, though, there there are still ways. And it happened during the markup of the ACA, for example, when Senator Baucus was the chairman. If he wants to cut you off, um, everybody <laughs> gets a specific time to make their points and say they're voting for or against an amendment. You get cut off. And so depending on the relationship between the Democrats and the Republicans on committees, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But it's an interesting prospect. I agree. Well, very interesting. Uh, We like to end on a note about interesting prospects or any prospects at all. This has been a Brownstein podcast, Senate Update. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.